Welcome to Plain Spoken, Biotech and MedTech Interviews by Encode Ideas. My name is Hogan Mullally. I'm a partner at Encode. I've had a few weeks now to reflect on our initial podcast, an interview with Gideon Shapiro of Bright Minds Biosciences, and there's a few things I'd like to draw our audience's attention to. First off, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, and you have an interest in psychedelic investing, psychedelic drug development, I do think Gideon provides some pretty fantastic insight into that particular space. He even opines on Compass's impending phase 2B data for treatment-resistant depression. So I do think it's a really valuable interview for anyone focusing on that particular area. The other thing I would highlight is that we tried to time that first podcast with Bright Minds NASDAQ listing. And at the time, we thought that that was going to happen on the week of the 11th. So we launched the podcast on the 11th, thinking that that would nicely coincide with the NASDAQ uplisting. As it turned out, that didn't occur. And here we are the week of the 18th and still no NASDAQ listing for Bright Minds Biosciences. So I just wanted to reassure our audience that I have communicated with the CEO of Bright Minds Biosciences. Ian McDonald, he has reassured me that the NASDAQ listing is still imminent and we should all just stay tuned. So clearly we were a little anxious and a little early in our anticipation of that NASDAQ listing, but it is still impending. So for our next interview, we're going to be talking to the CEO of Delcath Systems, Gerard Michel. And before we jump into our interview with Gerard, I thought it might be valuable to provide some context on my history with Delcath because I do, in fact, have quite a long history with Delcath that dates back almost, well, over 10 years. Back in 2009, I had launched a new investor relations consulting business focused on biotech and medtech companies. Very, very difficult time to be out trying to drum up new business in the teeth of the financial crisis, a bear market. But uh, nonetheless, I I was out trying to find new clients to engage with for investor introductions. So I was down in New York and a friend of mine was able to get an introduction on my behalf to Delcat Systems. At the time, the CEO was a gentleman by the name of Richard or Rich Taney. And I sat down with Rich in their Manhattan offices and made my pitch on how I could make introductions to a eclectic group of investors, sort of outside of your typical Boston, New York, San Francisco biotech hubs. I focus more on uh, Canada, my home country, you know, introductions into Toronto, Montreal. And then I also thought, given Delcast's med tech slant, that perhaps a Midwest, Minnesota, Chicago angle could also work for the story. And to my surprise, I obviously uh, caught Rich's attention, so he engaged me uh, to do some investor relations work for them. And although he paid me next to nothing, I was hungry for the business. Um, you might even say desperate, and uh, I took it. So I had an opportunity to do, as it turned out, one roadshow for the company. 
And in that roadshow, I took them to Canada, to my home country, to Toronto, Montreal, where I made introductions to predominantly retail investors, candidly, because there aren't a lot of institutional investors in Canada that focus on healthcare. But I did make the uh, introductions to the few select dedicated life science funds up here. So I would have introduced them to sectoral asset management in Montreal. I introduced them to ProQuest, um, which had an office in Montreal at the time. And I also introduced them to this small, newer biotech hedge fund in Toronto called Rosalind Advisors. Frankly, I have no recollection as to how the overall roadshow went. And as it turned out, shortly after that roadshow, Rich Taney was shuffled out as CEO of Delcath, and they brought in a high-profile medtech new CEO by the name of Eamon Hobbs. And is often the case when there is a change at the top, there is fallout for others. And in that case, fallout for me. So after, I want to say, maybe a four to six month engagement with Delcath, I was shown the door. Even though I was no longer actively engaged with Delcath, you still follow companies that you had a relationship with. So I followed the ensuing drama that occurred between Delcath and the FDA. I watched the advisory committee outcome catastrophic 14 to nothing vote. I watched the totally predictable complete response letter and basically from there knew the company had been on life support for many, many years. But you know, you put it in your rearview mirror and you move on. And fast forward 10 years, 2019 Bloomberton Investor Conference in Toronto. And I run into my friends at Rosalind Advisors who pull me aside and proceed to give me their Delcath pitch. Remembering that I'd been the one that introduced it to them 10 years earlier, they basically laid out their investment thesis to me and said that they thought that Encode Ideas could be helpful in this renewing of the Delcath story, of this retelling of a new Delcath 2.0, and that you know we should give it some serious consideration. So over the next, let's say, three to six months, we went to New York, we met with the company, we did our work, and eventually we arrived at a very similar conclusion to Rosalind, that there was an opportunity here, that the company's valuation was probably more a reflection of its colorful past than of its bright future. So in May of 2020, we launched research on Delcast Systems. At the time, the stock was sub $10. I just actually pulled up our initiation report. It was $7.35 at the time of our launch. And for a while, we looked pretty darn smart because in the latter part of 2020 and the early part of 2021, Delcath became a bit of a, a darling and, you know, ran into the 20s and in fact, you know, hit mid-20s in the early part of 2021. But as we speak now, it's made a full round trip back to 10 and sub 10 some days and frankly trades by appointment. And here we are heading into in a really big catalyst for the company, which is their full focus data release, which we're expecting sometime here. I'm budgeting for November. So we thought it'd be timely to 
revisit the Dell Cast story with our with our audience. So we're going to do this interview with Gerard Michel. Before I transition to the interview, I would just like to highlight that at the time of our research launch in uh, early 2020, we did receive a one-time payment from Delcath. We have not received any additional compensation subsequent to that one-time payment, and we have no anticipation of additional compensation from Delcath. And with all of that long preamble behind me, I will now transition to our call, our interview with Delcath Systems. I'd like to welcome Gerard Michel, CEO of Delcast Systems, to the podcast. Hi, Gerard, and thanks for joining me today. Uh, great to be here, Hogan. Thanks for having me. So you joined Delcath a little over a year ago from Vericell. I don't personally follow Vericell very closely, but like, wow, what what a move this stock has made in the last few years from sort of being range-bound in the teens to now north of $50. You know, you clearly played a part in this remarkable turnaround story. How do you replicate that strategy again here at Delcath? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, the first thing I want to do is it was even better than that. It, it, at some point, it was down in the mid-single digits within a few months of me joining that company. But there are definitely learnings from, from that amazing adventure there. I think the first thing is, why did I come here? So um, I wouldn't be able to replicate that here if I didn't believe or if there wasn't a very solid technology with a significant unmet need. The parallels between that, this and Vericell are simply, A, the thing works, there's a need, and importantly, nobody really was paying attention. No one had kind of figured it out, whether it was at Vericell with Sanofi's products that we purchased or, or here. Uh, that's the number one thing. The number two thing is um, I wouldn't be able to do this if I didn't have good people already here at the company. So it's very dedicated people uh, developing this program, this percutaneous hepatic perfusion program uh, or Hepsato. Then the third thing in terms of what do we actually replicate is, you know, I'm very data driven. I like to dig into the facts and position the products where they'll, they'll offer the most benefit to the patients, put the commercial resources in the right places, take the right regulatory strategy and be very transparent with investors. Those are all things I did uh, at Vericell that I will continue to do here. Great. So we could spend a whole podcast on Delcast Pass, but I don't really want to spend much time looking backwards. So I just have one question as it relates to the company's earlier NDA submission. You know, you stated previously that before joining Delcath, you poured over the company's FDA minutes. So based on your inter interpretation of FDA's comments, what are the key things that Delcath needs to address to secure an approval for Hepsato? I think the, most of the key things that had to address the secure approval, um, it addressed prior to even getting back in the clinic. I think that's the important first thing to, to note. The previous NDA, uh, you know, one might question how it even got as far as it did, given that they didn't have a consistent production uh, methodology for the filter, which is really the key to the whole um, system, filtering out the chemo from the blood. And that had to be fixed before it got in. And then we, we knew it was fixed um, long before we had our preliminary data readout because of all the single center studies that were done in Europe. I think the efficacy we have is clear. The safety is clear. I think really what we have to do to secure approval is, is make sure we can get through the FDA GMP audits, the CMC section, 
and make sure we put the NDA together just generally in a, in a tight manner where there are no dangling ends. But I think we have the data in hand. Um, it's just a matter now of executing on a regulatory front. That's interesting. You know, I, I think I think you bring up a great point, which is a lot of the issues that the FDA would have had with the first NDA submission was filter related. So having addressed the filter issue before your arrival, you know, you're basically saying that was the arguably the the most important item that had to be addressed. Yeah, it was. And it was addressed before the trial even started, although, you know, the single center studies weren't available at that point. So that, that data is kind of built, you know, incrementally over time. People have slowly who are paying attention become more comfortable. And then again, with this focus trial data, we had to had to be consistent with what's been seen out of the European single center studies and, and the safety profile was quite consistent there. Now, I think another thing that we have to do, and it's part of what I said, you know, kind of regulatory, you know, we have to need to execute on the regulatory front. Although this procedure is not really uh, dramatically more dangerous than than other IR procedures or take, getting systemic chemo, given the history, I think it's important that we have a very robust REMS program. So we will make sure we have an appropriate risk mitigation strategy in place. That's part and parcel of the training of the patient selection criteria to use the product, um, et cetera. But that'll be very important that we, we, we pay appropriate attention to that, and, and we are indeed doing so. You've mentioned a few times now some of the uh, single center data that's been generated with Hepsado in Europe. Do you think, though, those data, those single center data, some of them are extremely robust, showing ORR percentages north of 40%. Do you think those data were perhaps partially responsible for investor expectations, maybe running a little ahead of themselves heading into your first preliminary focus data release? Yeah, I think so. I mean, human nature is a funny thing. Although, you know, all we had to beat was 8.3% to to achieve our uh, predefined endpoint. And we did that handily. You know, when you're focused on a higher number and a lower number comes in, you know, that, that can cause some people some concern. The brainstem kicks in before they start, you know, thinking through things. Um, but we clearly, you know, met our endpoint. And I think it's important to note that some of those single center pa- trials had um, much less sick patients. A number of them had high percentages of first line patients because in some centers, this is considered first line in Europe whereas all our patients were second or third line and, and generally sicker. Um, also, some of, most of those trials also had more frequent uh, scanning frequencies. Um, so as uh, some of your listeners might know, to be considered a responder per you know, a technical category called resist or, or um, set of rules, you need to have um, two responses, a response that lasts at least four weeks. So you need two scans at least four weeks apart. A lot of those studies had more frequent scans every four to six, six to eight, et cetera. Ours were every 12 weeks. And if you have a more frequent periodicity, you're going to capture shorter responses as responses than we did. And that will artificially inflate one study's results versus another's. Uh, So that probably lowered our response rate to some extent. Um, But again, you know, I think the fact of the matter is we handily beat um, the pre-specified endpoint, but you know, by a factor of more than three, close to four. So I think we're on solid ground there. So with regards to that 
space between the initial scan and the confirmatory scan for focus being 12 weeks. And if my understanding is correct, that's really a, a remnant of the study at once being uh, a randomized controlled trial. Instead of, let's say, the, the minimum amount of period of time, which would have been four weeks, that should bear itself out, though, would it not, in uh, durability of response when we see those data in the, in the final focus package? Yeah, yeah. It, it, that by definition, you know, we need to have longer. We'll have longer duration of responses for those who are indeed responders. And do these single center European uh, studies that we've been seeing, even those that are prospectively uh, designed, do they have any weight with FDA when you sit down and resubmit your NDA? You supply all the publications, um, and I, I do think it is supportive now. You know, single center retrospective, they won't put a ton of weight in into the prospective study. That one was from Leiden, for example, but I think they'll put some weight in. But I think given the number of publications, you know, if it was just one or two, it might not mean too much. But there's, you know, quite a few of them out there at this point. I think six at this point. Um, and that should, you know, dramatically, I, I think that'll have an impact on the SDA. Okay, so... I guess the big catalyst that we've got in front of us is full focus data. We haven't got an exact time for that, but you've guided that sometime in October. I'm saying I'm thinking more November now. <laughs> we're going to have a uh, we're going to have a analyst day uh, where we'll see the full focus data and also a discussion around uh, future indications. I guess when it comes to the full focus data, we've already talked a little bit about durability of response. We'll see some of that, but the big reveal here will be survival data. Uh, you know, you've previously said in your fourth quarter earnings that there was a four-month separation between Hepsado and, and Best Alternative Care. You know, listening to your your recent presentations at Opco and Cantor, you know, you're talking about you know you'll you should be able to maintain your advantage versus BAC, and there should be a very meaningful advantage there. You know, I, I don't want to read too much into your language, but what what should we be thinking about from a very meaningful advantage perspective? What I mean, is is four months the baseline that we should all be sort of looking at at a minimum, and and the potential there to to better that uh, separation? Yeah, I think um, you know when I look at the PFS uh, where we had more more data, less sensor data, um, that advantage was uh, six months, and it was about triple. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we will you know, the overall survival will kind of parallel that, give or take. And, you know, given the fact that we have, you know, quite a few patients still living, now if they die less than the current median, um, that can shorten it. But I'm hopeful that, you know, that, that four months will at least stay where it is or get better. Could I be wrong? Yes, I could be wrong. But I, I, I'm more hopeful than not that it'll maintain or get better. But time will tell. So I, I know it's not comparing apples to apples per se, but I know how nice would it be to have Hepsado's overall survival extend beyond the, the 5.13 months seen with immunocores to Bentafusp. I mean, I guess in parallel with that, you know, it feels like a little bit that immunocore has has taken some of the limelight away from from delcath i mean for a while there delcath was arguably the poster child for metastatic ocular melanoma and all of a sudden we have this sexy new immunotherapy you know ipo 
that has you know robust uh, overall survival data. Okay, so two part question: the five point one three overall survival. How nice would it be to you know, uh, regardless of of the statistics, how nice would it be to to be over that? And then has has Immunocore st- stolen some of your thunder in the capital markets? How nice would it be? It'd be quite nice. Um, not too sure how how else to answer that. Um, you know, it's interesting. They presented their data in an interesting way. They gave six month and twelve month percentages of survival. So I think, you know, that we should probably cut our data the same way. And I think we'll do so, you know, we'll see how we compare on that as well. So it'd be kind of an apples to apples. In terms of how much, you know, wind did it take out of our sales? I don't hear a lot of it from our existing investors, the adages, the deer fields, you know, who are in our stock, some of our top five shareholders there. But, you know, for those who, you know, retail investors or, you know, those who don't run larger funds, family offices, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, they do a, a bit of digging quickly, you know, Google away a little bit. And all of a sudden they say, oh, look at this product, Immunicore, wow. Um, and it diminishes their interest. So although I haven't had a lot of people pushing me on that, I, I do think, you know, the folks who aren't calling me, the folks I don't talk to regularly, um, I suspect it has diminished their their interest. And I would say that unfortunately, patients all progress uh, regardless of the therapy they're on. And uh, the vast majority of these patients, and I think ninety percent plus, die because of the tumors in their liver uh, due to hepatic failure due to the tumors in the liver. If a patient is progressing on dibentafos, you know we will make sure that. You know, every doctor who's treating these types of patients knows that uh, we have great response rates in the liver and they should rapidly move on uh, when the patient starts progressing to our product. So I think we'll get quite a few of the Tibetan patients. Um, so I don't think it necessarily diminishes the market to a great deal. Unfortunately, some patients will progress rapidly and die and we'll lose them. Uh, but I think the majority of the patients who go on to Tibetan will be possible Hepzato patients after they start progressing on uh, on tibentafusk. So it doesn't really diminish the TAM really at all for us. No, that makes that makes good sense. I, I you know coming back to that comment about or my question around Immunicore maybe stealing some of the capital markets thunder from Delcaf and and it being more of a retail thing. You know, one of the things I have seen on on social media is some people feeling like uh, Immunocore may have raised the FDA bar from an approval perspective given their statistically significant OS benefit and the fact that Focus is using a single arm ORR as its primary endpoint. Do you have any concern that Immunocore has you know, changed the bar for approval relative to what you've got from a communication with FDA? That, that is a great question. And the answer is no, I, I don't have that concern. The reason is that one, Immunocore's product only treats patients who are a specific HLA phenotype. And HLA is a certain factor expressed on T cells. And you need about 45% of the patients have the phenotype required, but the other 55% of the patients don't. So uh, there's nothing out there for them still. Uh, That's the first thing. Uh, The second is, you know, we do have a BAC arm. um, And, uh, you know, so there is some comparator that um, that the FDA can do. And although, you know, I 
I suspect I won't have stat sig on overall survival because, again, the comparator arm, which is not formally part of the trial anymore since we switched to a single arm trial, is still there for supportive data. And again, if we kind of maintain where we are or do a bit better, you know, we'll show a survival advantage as well. And then lastly, comparing their data to our data is a bit of apples and oranges. Recall that they used immuno-oncology agents that are approved for cutaneous melanoma as their comparator. It's well known now that those really do little to nothing for the patients. So they were comparing themselves to something that um, really doesn't do any good, number one. And number two, their patients were all first-line patients. Our patients were all patients that had already gone through at least one line of therapy. That wasn't the inclusion criteria. It just so happens that medical oncologists have a habit of trying something else before they refer them on to the interventional oncologists, you know, and ours is an interventional oncology product. So we're talking, starting with patients who are kind of months behind, many months behind where Dibentifus were in terms of time from diagnosis of metastatic disease. And we're comparing ourselves to TACE, which does work. It does reduce the tumor load in the liver. It doesn't cure the patients. It doesn't reduce tumor load as well as we do. Now, our control arm, I should be a little clearer than that, our control arm or BAC arm, best alternative care arm, did include IO or immuno-oncology agents, but the vast majority, about 75% or so of the patients or 80% of the patients in the BAC arm got TACE, which again, does have responses. So our comparator, number one, was more efficacious than IO. Their comparator was, was a little better than nothing. And number two, their patients already were being treated upon diagnosis. Ours were all second line or later. And the FDA is going to know that. So they're going to look at our overall survival data and understand that, you know, we, our starting line was quite a bit further behind to Benthofusps. Although, you know, obviously you can't always, you can't really compare across trials. They'll do so anyway. Um, and second line, our comparator really was kind of a higher bar to get over. So looking at maybe Immunocore from a different angle, do you think though they could be a attribute to you given they're going to set a standard for pricing in this ultra orphan market for Tibentafus that perhaps you couldn't use as a baseline for how you price Hepsato? Yeah, well, obviously we're very interested to see how they price. And uh, yeah, I think it, it helps us a bit because I think, yes, it, it will give us an awful lot of uh, awful lot of room to maneuver. And I mean, I, I think for the audience, you know, I think one one marker for them to be aware of is, is you know, immuno-oncology agents are widely used to treat this, less so than, than a few years back, but docs want to try something, so they use it. And those run about $250,000 a year for, for an annual cost of treatment, just so there's a marker in, a, in the audience's head. Right. Just so we understand how Hepsato would be priced, it's it's priced on a per kit basis, correct? Right. So the average number of treatments and therefore kits used in the focus trial was a bit over four. So we just round down to four if we said we wanted a price at, I'll call it $200,000 a year for a patient that would mean $50,000 a kit. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be the price point, but that's kind of the, 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 the ballpark one should think about. Great. Okay. And then maybe a couple of questions on commercialization dynamics. There's been a lot of talk now of Hepsato being an outpatient procedure as opposed to an inpatient procedure. So can you maybe walk us through why this is so important? Yeah. 
so we'll have two payer categories to worry about, and this is not rocket science. First is, is CMS, Medicare, and Medicaid. And uh, Medicare's outpatient rule is that um, if something's on an outpatient basis and it has a J code, which we will, they'll just pay, pay the average ASP plus some formula. We generally um, fall within their definition of outpatient, which is you don't pass two midnights, midnight to midnight rule. Commercial payers, it's a little more complicated. For many oncology products, they carve out the cost of the drugs. It doesn't get captured in a DRG. Generally, if you are an inpatient, you do end up having to get paid for under a DRG. Most of our patients will probably spend one night in the hospital. Some commercial payers use a 23-hour rule. Some use, I understand, a midnight to midnight rule. But most of them for high-priced oncology drugs have some type of carve-out position in their, in their contracts. Um, so I think with the J-code, you know, as a drug, we're, we're in good shape. Okay, the only other question I have with regards to commercialization is something which I think is a bit of a, a cloud over the company, frankly, which has been the European commercialization. Um, you know, it's been, and I think, you know, for our audience's perspective, I think it's important to frame it in the fact that, you know, having a CE mark isn't a panacea for commercialization in Europe, obviously. And you've talked about this at great length in your, in your remarks from various calls that, you know, reimbursement is really key, not the, uh, the, the approval per se, the CE mark. So we, I think we all understand that reimbursement has been a real challenge for, for Delcath, for uh, Chemosat in Europe. So without belaboring that further, you know, when do you think we're going to actually start to see meaningful sales coming out of Europe for, for Chemosat? That really requires national reimbursement. And the national reimbursement has been hindered by a lack of a of efficacy trial that showed clear-cut benefits. The existing efficacy trial that was the basis of the uh, 2013 CRL. That trial obviously did not show overall survival. It showed a detriment, partly due to a crossover design and partly due to the toxicities with the filter that wasn't consistently working. When we have the focus trial data out there and available to support national reimbursement requests, that's, you know, that's what will drive reimbursement. That's probably about two years out from having success there. We'll probably start submitting those applications next year, mid to late next year, and then that the clock will take about a year. So I think in some ways you can almost forget that we were approved in Europe and think through the normal sequence of events you see with any other product that's approved. And that's usually European revenue drag, you know, lags about a year in terms of uptake um, because of that reimbursement issue. Right. And I suppose one shouldn't focus too much on the actual sales that have been coming out of Europe because the real benefit you have received, I suppose, is the clinical data that's been generated there and the experimentation, frankly, I guess, in non-metastatic ocular melanoma indications, which I'm sure have given you some ammunition as far as where you're thinking about going for future indications. Yeah. What's interesting is investigators on their own have, have used this in about 13 different tumor types. Now, some of those tumor types are N equal one, some are N equal eight, some are N equal 12. It's all over the board, but yeah, it's, it's given us, you know, knowledge that once docs try this, they want to try it in a broad range of uh, liver mets. You know, ICC, which is about twice the size of ocular melanoma, is one that, that docs have 
probably most frequently tried this in. And, you know, they've gotten some meaningful response rate. Now it's across a variety of different sites, but, you know, enough that, you know, we think it makes sense to run a trial there. Something else that's, you know, important to note in Europe is the, the countries where you can move forward or a country you can move forward without national reimbursement is Germany in that they have a scheme called a, or a payment process called ZE. And in that, the hospitals on their own can say, look, there's not a lot of, you know, this is this is approved under a CE mark, no, no national reimbursement, but we'd like to make a special request to be reimbursed. And there are a number of hospitals in Germany that have done that. And that represents, you know, a good percentage of our business. Um, again, what's important there is, is the clinicians have decided to do that on their own. It was not a consultant that's hiring uh, per se to drive it through a national process. The hospitals need to do that on their own and they have to do that, you know, every year. It would be a lot easier if we had the focus trial data for them. But, you know, there's genuine interest there, and that's why it's moved forward. Similarly, in um, in the UK, you know, the clinicians got together and they uh, lobbied uh, the NIH or, or NICE, excuse me, and they, they changed our standard uh, from research only to specialty, and that allows commercial pay. Now, there's not a lot of commercial pay there, but that enables commercial pay, excuse me, and now we can try to start going to some local funds to see if they'll pay for treatments. But again, what's interesting here is is... This has been driven more by the docs themselves. Recall that we are not currently commercializing the product in Europe. MEDAC is. That deal was signed at the end of 2018. And we really, frankly, have the same sites open and running now as we had when we did it ourselves for a couple of years. Um, they really haven't opened any new ones. We have, for details on I mean, reasons I'm not, I don't want to get into in the podcast, have uh, notified MEDAC that we're terminating that agreement. Uh, with six months notice, you know, we'll see how that plays out because, uh, you know, not every party sees eye to eye on, on certain contractual details, but I'm very hopeful we will indeed have that back next year. And I'm hopeful that we'll be able to show an upward trend when it's back in our hands. And we filed an 8K on that. So I'm not saying anything that, that isn't known at this point publicly. No, that that's that's great. And And is your vision for for Chemosat in Europe then, assuming you're able to regain rights, from MEDAC, would it be to commercialize it yourself in Europe or look for another partner? It's interesting. Um, in my career, and I've done a lot of BD work, business development work over the years, uh, strategy work over the years in a variety of consulting roles and then CFO for a variety of biotech companies. You know, I've always had the mindset, you know, small companies should never try to commercialize overseas on their own. This is a case where I'm actually taking the opposite perspective. And the reason is for very rare diseases in Europe, they, the treatment centers are, are highly, highly concentrated. Um, there are usually only a handful of places per country that you need to go to. And for a high-priced, low-volume product such as this, we don't need an, an awful lot, large, awfully large footprint to market the product. So this is sort of the, the, the unusual situation where it does make sense to hang on to it and do it yourself. And there's going to be so much clinical development work ongoing and other indications. And again, for a highly specialized product like that, you know, your medical affairs team is a core part of, of the whole program. We're working on the IITs and, and the clinical ops folks working on this, on the sponsor trials. It's best to have one face to the customer, whether it's on the clinical development, medical affairs or commercial side. Great. That makes sense. You mentioned ICC as a next indication. You've previously stated that ICC and metastatic colorectal are the two indications you'll pursue 
next with Hepsado. When do you think the first of those studies, irrespective which, of which one, can actually get off the ground and, and start enrolling patients? It's a great question. I don't know which one, which one will get off the ground right, uh, first. Um, they will get off the ground next year. So it's one is ICC, the other two, well, one to two, we may do two settings in CRC the next year as well. I think it's important to note the rationale for CRC is uh, because there's an awful lot of data in intrahepatic perfusion. Um, that's a surgical technique where you open up the gut and you basically put the liver on a heart-lung machine. You take it off the, the normal, your, your full systemic circulatory system. You pump it full of melphalan. Then you uh, flush the liver with uh, saline or something similar, and then you put the liver back on the circulatory system. Our system, our percutaneous hepatic perfusion system, was designed to do that without slicing open the whole body. There is a ton of data out there in a number of tumor types with IHP, and the most common chemo they use is melphalan, which is what we use. So it makes a lot of sense to go after CRC. Point of fact, it probably would have made more sense to go after, go after CRC first, but one of the early CEOs of the company, he got involved because his daughter died of metastatic ocular melanoma, and he steered the company towards that. I can't fault, fault his uh, rationale for that, but CRC is something where there's at least as much data as there was for ocular melanoma um, based on the IHP, um, and the, the results there are quite impressive. Um, so we're excited to get out into that large, large indication, and we're getting a lot of positive responses from medical oncologists as well as surgical oncologists about trying this technique. Uh, right now, we're just sorting through which of about six different settings within that disease state makes the most sense and what is protocol design. And for your ICC, do you think you'd be able to work under the existing protocol you have with FDA or, I mean, I, I, or... Do you think you'd be able to work under the existing, let's say, IND you have with FDA on ICC, or do you think you'll have to go down a different regulatory path there? It'll be under the existing IND. I think the question is, well, you know, we'll, we'll modify the protocol. The question is, will we maintain the special protocol, the SPA we have right now? If we can't maintain the SPA, I'm okay with that, um, because right now the way the trial is designed. It's it's very, very difficult to recruit patients. We'll make some modifications to it, and then we'll go back to the FDA, and we'll see um, if we maintain the spa or not. It won't be so different that we can't just amend the protocol. So the open question is whether we, we maintain the spa or not. Gotcha. Okay. Last question. Thank you again for your time. Uh, you know, more capital markets focused. You've done a good job attracting some really new and noteworthy life science funds into your cap table, obviously Deerfield being the largest of which, but you know, you mentioned adage earlier, you've got silver arc, you've got a carry. And I, I, I it would be uh, remiss of me not to mention Rosalind actually as the, as arguably the largest shareholder, not the largest fund, but you know, what has been the impediment to bringing other notable institutional investors into the name? Obviously liquidity is an issue, but are, is, there a, is there a certain event catalyst that they're waiting for? Is it full focus data? Is it, are they more waiting for regulatory clarity? Yeah, walk me through what your interaction has been like with the institutional community that's, that's sort of flirting with the name right now. You know, the last uh, and the only equity transaction I've done since joining, I did about two months 
after I joined um, in December of last year. And um, there were quite a few, you know, good solid names that came in. You mentioned some of them. The, uh, you know, and since then, you know, with the decline in the share price, I haven't tried very hard to get new names in in terms of an offering. I, I don't want to do an equity offering anytime soon, given the share price. Now, the types of funds that I'm generally interested in don't often come in until they can take a sizable bite and then they build from there. Um, so that might be one issue. Clearly, the lack of liquidity, you know, probably hinders them to some extent. But there have been some funds that have come in, um, notable names that I don't think have all filed. So I'll just be careful about what I say, but I know they're in. Uh, some, some others have come in, but they've had to build their positions over time. But I think once, you know, all the efficacy data is out there and no one's no longer concerned that there's something out there, you know, that they don't know about. I think that'll give investors a chance to take a step back and say this makes sense, especially once they see that we have concrete plans in other indications and that we have credible surgical oncologists and medical oncologists, both from the U.S. and Europe, saying they're excited to get involved. I think that'll make a big difference. One one last question that just popped into my head and something I would like to try to ask all future CEO executives on sort of biotech, med tech companies we interview. Something I'm really curious about is your perspective on just biotech investing in general. Personally, I noticed, you know, for example, you've been great. You've put, you know, by my calculation, about a half a million dollars to work into Delcath. So you put your money where your mouth is with regards to investing in Delcath. But, you know, do you, do you invest in the, in the, in the biotech space outside of obviously your, you know, your, your, your insider purchases at Delcath. I mean, do you have, do you follow the broader biotech market? Are there companies you like, spaces you like putting Delcath to the side for a second? I don't pick stocks. And the reason is, is I don't have the time. You know, 90% of my effort is focused on Delcath. And when I was at Baricel, it was the same thing. When I was at Biodel and MPS prior to that, it was the same thing. To really invest in a stock, I think you need to do a fair amount of homework. And otherwise, I just, I hire professionals to take care of my money. You know, do I occasionally see things that I say, yeah, this looks great, but I've been wrong as often as I'm right when I kind of take a cursory look at things. And I think part of that's driven by a big part of my career has been doing business development, looking at other opportunities to bring on board. And in big pharma and consulting, and then with uh, with Vericell, as well as shopping assets to uh, to potential big pharma partners, MPS and, and Biodel, and, and you know what I've learned there is you really have to do a heck of a lot of diligence. You have to do your homework, and I've been trained so much, I think, in that manner that it's difficult for me just to pull the trigger on a on a small amount of data. And again, I don't have the time. I've got a full time job here. I don't have the time to do a ton of diligence on on other companies. I do try to pay attention to trends for us to the extent that I think they're going to impact what I'm doing right now at Delcath. That's something I definitely do do, but I don't try to dive in and, and you know and, and pick stocks. How about you? What do you do? I'm a I'm a stock junkie, Gerard. So, uh, but that is my job. My job is to be uh, you know paying attention to this stuff. So, um, but I really do. I think your 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 answer is is candid and it's great. I mean, in the end, I think we want to see companies led by people who are you know laser focused. So, buying stocks is not for everybody. 
and uh, staying focused on what you're doing here. And you've got obviously a lot of equity at stake here. And I think that's uh, that's what we like to see when it comes to you know companies that I make a bet on for sure. What trends do you like, not like? What sectors do you like within biotech methods? I mean, I, I find oncology really, really busy, frankly. Uh, so it's hard to pick winners within oncology. I like the ultra orphan path. So I like what Delcast doing here. For me, I, I tend to look for just the undiscovered, undervalued, you know, the Delcast of the world. Try to find something that has been beaten up, has been misunderstood, miscast, and try to be early, try to be right. That's sort of been my model for for many years, and it served me it served me quite well so far. Well, I will do my best to make sure it serves you well on this one as well. Terrific. Well, thanks, Gerard. I really appreciate your time. Very insightful. I, I sincerely appreciate you uh, you making some time for us today. All right. Thanks so much for having me. A few concluding thoughts after my interview with Gerard Michelle of Delcast Systems. Since Gerard's become CEO of Delcath, I've probably spoken to him a half dozen times. I've listened to the vast majority of his conference calls and investment banking presentations. And I have to say, I find him extremely reassuring as a shareholder. He's extremely steady, knowledgeable, pragmatic. I feel like the company is in excellent hands with Gerard. Sure, as a microcap CEO, there can always be a little more salesmanship there. And perhaps that is something that will come with time. But as far as understanding what he's gotten himself into from a technology perspective, understanding the path forward from a regulatory perspective, understanding what this could be from a commercial perspective, I really do feel comforted in Gerard's leadership. I suspect he's a little surprised uh, as CEO as to how much Delcast history continues to dog it a little bit, but I do think that from a technology perspective, from a uh, path forward perspective, I think Gerard is extremely emboldened in his decision to become CEO of Delcath. And it gives me a lot of confidence as we head into what will really be a critical 12 month period. And speaking of that, I'm really curious to see how things play out with a November full focus data release. It could end up being a complete non-event because the vast majority of the data has already been released. But there is this sneaky upside, in my opinion, around overall survival. And I hinted at it in my Q&A with Gerard, where we talk about the symbolism, perhaps, of beating the 5.13 months seen with Immunicore. Again, not apples to apples comparison. I get it. But I do think Immunicore has captured a lot of people's imaginations and perhaps taken some of the limelight away from Delcath, and rightfully so. Uh, but I do think it would be very symbolically nice to see them push over that 5.13 months. He hinted at the fact that OS could trend along the same lines as the PFS data, which would be six months, which would be fantastic. But of course, he is very measured in his comments saying that there's a very low probability of statistical significance versus BAC, which I think is is fair. I really appreciate people tuning into the podcast. They're very much a work in progress for me. I'm learning as I go, but uh, and any feedback that anyone has, I'm always welcome and open to feedback or suggestions for future podcasts. I would note that these podcasts should not be considered investment advice. They are for entertainment purposes only. And with that, 
I look forward to speaking to you again in a few weeks.